Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host Raj Daniels and today I'd like to welcome Dr. C.B. Bhattacharya to the show. Dr. C.B. is the H.J. Zafar Chair in Sustainability and Ethics at the Katz Graduate School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh. He is a world-renowned expert in business strategy innovation aimed at increasing both business and social value. Dr. C.B. is also an author and his most recent book is titled Small Actions, Big Difference. Dr. C.B., how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Raj. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Dr. C.B., I like to start the show off with something interesting about my guest that many people wouldn't know about them. So please, if you wouldn't mind. Well, before my career as an academic, I um, started as a brand manager back in the day in India, right after my uh, MBA from the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, which is uh, a well-known school back there. And uh, my first job was with a company called um, Rekit Benkiza. It used to be called Rekit and Coleman at the time, but now it's called Rekit Benkiza. And my first job task with the company, if you will, was to launch a brand of toilet cleaner in the Indian market. Um, now, you can have aspirations and aspirations, but I don't think anyone got up in the morning and said, well, I'm really looking forward to doing this job of, of launching a brand of toilet cleaner. Uh, <laughs> but I said to myself, well, no place to go but up uh, from here. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a fascinating experience um, because... Uh, India, this is the mid-1980s I'm talking about, and India is being a labor surplus country. Uh, we always had janitors who would kind of come and, 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 and clean the toilets uh, in houses and apartments and so on. So the idea of, of a household spending you know, three or four times as much money on a toilet cleaner, which is you know, a fancy blue-colored liquid that mm -hmm. I had to kind of you know, bring into the market, um, was, was uh, you know, a difficult proposition. So... Um, that was a brand called Harpic, um, and um, I launched Harpic in the mid-1980s. And I'm happy to say that uh, it's the largest selling toilet cleaner uh, by far in the Indian market today. So that's something I'm, I'm pretty proud of. So that is fascinating. So, so tell me then, what did motivate you to go to work to you know, pursue that at that time? Well, um, it was at, in, in those days, consumer product companies were kind of what, you know, uh, the uh, investment banks or, or technology companies are today. Kind of, you know, they, they were the, the blue chip companies people wanted to work with. And that was my interest for sure, uh, was in consumer products. And um, so I was happy to get the job. After that, it was, you know, uh, the company's prerogative to, to give me whatever product they wanted to, to give me to launch. And, you know, typically when you are a rookie and kind of young in the chain, then um, you get kind of the, you know, uh, something that uh, is, is low on the priority list. Uh, they wouldn't entrust <laughs> you with a large seller at the time. So, mm -hmm. uh, all right, you figure out the marketing strategy for this um, and, and let's go to market. And uh, I was very lucky that, uh, you know, I had a vice president of marketing who was quite fantastic um, in his kind of vision and foresight. And um, he encouraged me to try to understand consumer psychology uh, by conducting focus groups uh, myself and, and so on and so forth. So 
that was the time when I realized that kind of I might want to do a PhD because I really do un- enjoy kind of, you know, uh, learning about consumer psychology and how uh, human beings behave. So you might say that th- that was like the first time uh, or, or one of the early times that uh, the seed of, of uh, going for higher education was kind of planted in my mind. So let's tee off of that consumer psychology, fast forward 30 plus years to your most recent endeavor, your book. Can you give some brief background into your book, please? Yeah, so um, my research in corporate responsibility was actually sparked by uh, my interest in social issues um, as a result of which I was doing student projects uh, with nonprofits and, and social causes and so on and so forth. And um, I got asked an interesting question one evening by Mr. Ben Cohen, who was the CEO of, of Ben & Jerry's, so the Ben of Ben & Jerry's. Wow. He asked me an interesting question, uh, which was like, um, hey, we do a lot of things for the environment and we do a lot of things for society. So, you know, we support the rainforest and the environment. We pay our workers a living wage rather than a minimum wage. So we do all these things for society. So can you help me understand if what we do for the environment and for society, you know, does it help us sell ice cream? Do people buy Ben and Jerry's because of our environmental and social performance, all else equal? And I found that to be a very fascinating question. I said, you know, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to kind of think about this because as marketing people, we were always thinking about sales um, Mm -hmm. as an outcome, but we were not thinking about environmental attributes and social attributes as drivers of sales. You know know what I mean? We were always thinking about product quality, price, advertising, all of these, yeah, were the drivers of sales. But environmental and social attributes, no, we were not thinking about that at all. So I thought, okay, maybe there's something um, interesting to to think about here. And I started doing research on the topic. And, and lo and behold, it was like peeling an onion mm-hmm. uh, to understand kind of under what conditions do stakeholders kind of reward companies for their social responsibility. And that became a body of work on, uh, on its own. And um, as I was doing this work and working with companies like like Procter and Gamble, uh, like General Mills, Timberland, and others, um, I came to one observation, which is that you know the CSR manager of these companies, or the sustainability managers of these companies, were very fine people, but they were also very lonely. So they did not really have a seat at the proverbial strategic table of the of the company. And Mm -hmm. here it was that my research revealed that the only way to maximize kind of the leverage that you get from doing your CSR activities and your sustainability activities um, kind of from stakeholders is to be strategic. Mere engagement doesn't help. You have to be strategic. So the purpose is kind of defeated and, you know, the whole asset is being under leveraged. And and that's when I thought, okay, I mean, how, how, how do we kind of, showcase to companies that it's best to sustainability is best thought of as being in the center of the organization and not on the periphery. And it ought to be everybody's job in the organization because in the meantime, I was doing a lot of executive education and executives were always telling me, yes, this is important. Sustainability is important, but it's someone else's problem. I have Mm -hmm. more important things to do. So we have a department, they'll take care of that. And I, I, 
found this kind of refrain, um, constant refrain kind of uh, frustrating because I realized that given the state of the planet and its people, um, you know, if, if sustainability is relegated to one department of the organization, there is no way that we can surmount this ex existential crisis that kind of, you know, uh, besets us right now. So, um, so that's what I wanted to make a difference to. I, I wanted to understand, again, using that lens of human psychology, um, what does it take to get an entire organization to kind of mobilize behind this sustainability movement so that it's it's not someone else's problem anymore, so that every individual kind of in an organization kind of takes uh, responsibility, takes ownership for, for, for sustainability. So if you glance through the book, you will see that this concept of psychological ownership of sustainability is kind of a you know central um, theme that kind of runs through kind of all all, all the chapters but uh, that so what, in short was the motivation sorry so what year was the conversation with ben <laughs> this was uh, circa 1995 is what i want to say <laughs> so 1995 we're in you know 2019 today as of this recording how have you seen the conversation or landscape change in the companies that you're speaking with um, it's changed dramatically in many ways. I mean, so um, when I started uh, in doing research in this company, um, companies were doing social and environmental uh, initiatives, but most of them were, were not strategic about it. So, which is to say that they did not necessarily think about kind of, you know, behind what cause are we spending our money and who's the target audience and, and what kind of industry do we operate in, all the kinds of things that my research had unveiled as, as critical in kind of driving stakeholder responses. Um, but if you, if you think beyond that, the major shift that happened in our um, business landscape is the talk of you know climate change? Is the talk of inequality, mm -hmm. the social issues, and the environmental issues suddenly started taking much more center stage? And corporate responsibility got usurped by this concept called sustainability. And in many companies' minds, sustainability is corporate responsibility 2.0. But that's the first myth that I like to dispel because okay. You know, it's it's not sustainability. Is about survival. It's really, but by definition, it's about survival. It's about long term health, and when you think about the long term health of the company, that's involves all parts of the company. It does not involve just one department. It involves procurement, you know, consumption, uh, manufacturing, disposal, kind of, you know, every aspect of the organization. It, you know, it touches HR, it touches investor relations, and on and on it goes. And so this is fundamentally different from the idea of being socially responsible, which can be driven by one part of the organization, which does not have to necessarily permeate all aspects of the company. So this fundamental difference, and as well, sustainability goes to the philosophy of the company, uh, which is why there is a chapter in my book on, on corporate purpose, kind of, you know, the whole journey mm -hmm. starts with asking that all important question of why do we do what we do? And unless a company has been able to answer that question to, to satisfaction and, and to put that in societal terms, because at, by now you should have realized that we don't do what we do for the sake of money. 
you know, there has to be a social mission, like people like Larry Fink even have pointed that out. So all of these things go to suggest that sustainability has to be thought of in a different light than corporate social responsibility. So I would say so those are some of the fundamental shifts that have taken place in the 20 plus years in the interim. So let's say, for example, you're speaking to a leadership team at a company and, you know, the executives tell you, you know, look, Dr. CB, we, we love your work and we appreciate what you're doing. We're having a hard time with the, you know, the rank and file who are pushing back because, you know, they're driven to do production and they're driven by other demands and they're pushing back and saying, you know, how do we, how do we message this to our rank and file to make it seem like, you know, this is something that we are prioritizing? What, what advice would you give to those leadership teams? Yeah, that's a great question, Raj. Um, I mean, the first thing would be to go back and kind of, you know, define corporate purpose for that particular company. I mean, as as soon as it is so, the narrative is changed kind of, you know, from, let's say, just take one example from from selling soap, you know, uh, in Mm -hmm. the context of a company like Unilever, for example, as when the narrative is changed from selling soap to kind of saving lives, you know, kind of they have an antibacterial soap you may have heard of by the name of Lifebuoy. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a large seller in emerging markets. Now, Lifebuoy, of course, um, <clears throat> when you sell soap, you, you know, you sell Lifebuoy, but it also helps save lives. It, it attacks the cause of child mortality. So when the idea by the philosophy behind kind of developing and selling Lifebuoy is communicated as kind of, okay, it's not just about selling soap, but ultimately, it's about you know saving these lives that we can by hand washing. That has a very different impression upon the employee, and the employee might be doing the same thing on the production line, mm-hmm. but there is a but there is a different energy that comes, and this is something that I've seen firsthand because people want to be remembered having done something meaningful for society. You mentioned the rank and file. The rank and file are the last people who are actually thinking about profit because they don't really benefit that much from profit. But they benefit much more from meaning attributed to their jobs. Why do they do what they do beyond making ends meet? Of course, they're trying to make ends meet and put food on the table, send their children to school, all of that. But Mm -hmm. on top, if there is that other sense that what I am doing, you know, for the 10, 12 hours every day, is actually benefiting some segment of society, you know, live a better life in some way. That's a far more powerful message to take home and get a good night's sleep than what we do is only about making more money because the rank and file person does not necessarily see the the fruits of of kind of that, that kind of labor. So the communicating purpose definitely helps. The other thing is to enable. So motivation is not the only part. There's ability is an equally important kind of part of the equation. So you have to invest in training your your employees and give them the skills that they need to operate sustainably. So everything is not you know as easy. Um, as, as putting off lights, for example, or, or printing two-sided. Sustainability has many kind of scientific aspects to it. You know, you do eco-efficiency analysis, you do materiality analysis, and, and these things need to be need to be learned by 
the individuals, uh, you know, who who have to execute um, sustainability in R and D, kind of from new materials. You get the idea. So, so it's it's not just <clears throat> the, the the talk is is not enough. I mean, you have to kind of you know instill management systems, uh, support practices, uh, training, coaching, all of this stuff to kind of bring bring people up to speed so that they're able to integrate sustainability into their day job. Once the costs of integration are low and the benefits of integration are high, you will see that switch taking place within, within organizations. Um, you know, it's, I, I've seen it happen. You know, the training piece is so important. And, you know, I read this little snippet one time where the CFO asked the CEO, you know, we're spending all this money to train these individuals. What if after we train them, they leave? And I love the, the CEO yeah. response. <laughs> right. you know, what if they stay? Yeah, what if we don't train them and they stay? <laughs> right, exactly. So right, yeah. totally agree with you there. You know, a couple of times you've mentioned um, purpose and meaning and why. In, in the vein of that, I, I kind of like to explore, you know, the Simon Sinek, the why behind people do what they're doing. So, you know, what gives you the your why and your meaning, your purpose to, you know, pursue these for all this, pursue this for all these years? Well, it's about kind of, again, finding that, finding that particular meaning. I mean, I don't know uh, what kind of, you know, astrological uh, configuration of stars kind of, you know, dragged me into uh, <laughs> uh, academia, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and then what uh, constellation uh, made me change my, my, my topic from kind of, you know, uh, analyzing scanner data, you know, which is what I did for my dissertation, you know, kind of statistically modeling uh, supermarket scanner data that used to be big data at the time mm-hmm. um, to kind of thinking about uh, how do you kind of get get uh, organizations to transition to sustainable business models um, <clears throat> it's it's just like the the idea of being able to do what you can do you know and and I've and I, I enjoy um, doing this kind of research. I enjoy talking to companies. I like kind of making a difference uh, that, you know, talking to companies, this part may have come from my brand management days. You you don't know what aspect kind of, you know, uh, what influences you and, and how that shapes your future and so on and so, so forth. But um, to me, it's extremely important being a, being a professor of, of management, it's extremely important to make a difference um, to practitioners and, and how practitioners operate. And, uh, and if you think about that, uh, just that part, I, I found the whole idea of making, I know, making more money and obliterating ourselves uh, to be a fairly silly game, honestly. <laughs> uh, I like this other game that it's a longer game and, you know, that I only see kind of upside to, to, to working on this, uh, to work on, to working on these issues. And I find that students, which is another, you know, important, uh, constituent of, of my work, students really need this education. And I'm very happy to be one of those uh, who are out there right now being able to provide it for them. So uh, all told, I mean, I'm a big believer in this aspect of working in your spheres of influence. Each of us can only work in our sphere of influence. So you are doing this podcast with me today, and and you're going to send that out to to the world. 
um, that's your sphere of influence. I mean, I can describe my work um, um, in, in Small Actions, Big Difference, the, the name of my book. And, um, you know, maybe that model that I proposed in the book is going to be helpful uh, to, to some folks. And that's in my sphere of influence. So um, I believe that if all of us work in our spheres of influence, then uh, the collective impact can be great. And that was, that's what motivates me on a daily basis. You mentioned your model. Can you explain your model? Um, yeah. So um, the model basically has three phases, and the, the three phases are called incubate, launch, and entrench. And in the incubation phase, what we have to do is the leadership of the organization has to define the corporate purpose. As I said, why do we do what we do? And then define the priorities of the company, some concrete goals. I mean, this is very, very important. And remember that the whole purpose of the model is to enable your employees to take ownership of sustainability. That's the, that's the psychological construct that we are after, that we have to build a sense of ownership so that they accept, everybody accepts responsibility on their own and they, and they, conduct business through the lens of sustainability. So that's the backdrop. Now, with that backdrop, what really helps is to have this sense of purpose, which leadership needs to define, and leadership needs to define some concrete goals that the organization is going to tackle. So um, carbon may not be important for a financial services company, but cybersecurity may be important. So Mm -hmm. you need to do what's called a materiality analysis to figure out, okay, what are the two or three key issues for my organization to tackle? Once you've done that, armed with a purpose and some concrete goals, you're ready to launch your program uh, in the through the company and beyond. I mean, you know, and uh, the launch phase has kind of, you know, two, two aspects to fit. One, the first aspect I call entice, and this is where you get everybody to jump aboard that ship sustainability, the good ship sustainability, uh, by making appeals to the head, you know, kind of, hey, this is a smart thing to do, or mm-hmm. making appeals to the heart, hey, this is the right thing to do, given the state of our planet. Um, you know, so different strokes for different folks, take people to the front lines, you know, expose them to the stuff that your company does, all of that. Um but creating motivation is not enough, like I had said before. So you have to create ability, and that's the that's the enable part. So that's the training, the management systems, um, all all of that, so that every individual is equipped across every department to be able to play the role that he or she uh, is expected to play. So do not make any exceptions in the organization. So once a C-suite officer told me that if you make one exception, then everybody thinks they are the exception. Right, so, right. so so no exceptions. Um, and then once you've launched your program, the third stage is called en- en- entrench, which means to make behaving sustainably kind of second nature. You know, you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. And this can be accomplished through three steps. One, the first step is I call demystify. So you've got to give feedback on the difference that your people are making uh, by working on sustainability. So demystify the progress, which kind of give them the measures, you know, how much difference have they made to CO2 reduction, to water, to waste, to employee engagement, whatever your important KPIs are, kind of keep feeding them the measures of progress. That builds motivation, that builds pride, that builds ownership. The second thing is kind of enliven, and that's co- enliven this culture of sustainability, keep it fresh in the organization always, 
by doing things like celebrating success, celebrating failure. I've gone to a company called Enel, a very, very large uh, electric utility company based out of Italy. And they have an award ceremony where they celebrate failure. It's called My Best Failure. The, That's different. The thought, the thought in the organization being that if you don't fail once in a while, then you're not trying hard enough and, and that we've got to learn to talk about our failures. Um, so things like this, you know, um, so keeping that culture fresh all the time, co-creating sustainability with your employees. And then the last step is is expanding that sense of ownership. So it's not just my company but it's our planet. And therefore, you know, putting sustainability in the pre-competitive space, collaborating with traditional competitors to tackle wicked problems, the tragedy of the commons problems like deforestation, you know, like electronic waste. One company cannot address these mega issues, mega challenges, you know, ending hunger. So we need consortia of companies to, to come together. So that, I call that expanding that sense of ownership. But through these steps, kind of, you know, you can build that sense of ownership amongst your employees and your other stakeholders in your ecosystem so that sustainability is no longer someone else's problem. And then everybody kind of pitches in in, in the company. So that's the gist of the model. You know, in, in your um, third phase, the entrench phase, the first one you started with demystify, I strongly agree with it. I find a lot of times when, you know, concepts are ephemeral, you can't really, there's no tangibility to them. It's mm -hmm. hard to get people motivated around that. So I, you know, I think that's such a key in that step. And I think very often, especially amongst executives and leaderships, you know, they, they convey a message, but they don't really present key tangible results to, like you said, you know, people that are perhaps lower in the organization, um, you know, additionally tapping into that why we're doing this and showing them those results. So totally right. agree with that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So your book is called Small Actions, Big Difference. And before I get to my last question, what are some, you know, small actions that we as individuals, organizations can take to participate in this movement? Um, that's that's a great question. And, and that really depends on your on your place in the perch. Um, I, I basically argue that it can be from the mailroom to the boardroom. So again, simple actions like you know, uh, putting putting lights off and 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 uh, removing removing plastic water bottles from from our offices. You know, all the way to kind of you know thinking about technologies that kind of you know potentially can um, sequester carbon. You know, can uh, you know can reduce the amount of waste that you're generating in your manufacturing processes. So, depending on whether you're an engineer you know, uh, or whether you're a scientist who's doing R&D to whether you're doing marketing and therefore you can talk to your customers about how um, kind of more sustainable your, your product is relative to others and, uh, you know, tout the benefits of sustainability to HR where you can, you know, think of um, investing in developing programs that make every every person think and act like a sustainability manager to investor relations where you kind of figure out how can I talk to my investors about our sustainability performance and, and so that they take notice um, that every every department and every individual in the organization can can play can play a role. Uh, no person is too small enough. And no person is, 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 is too big enough. And, and that's, 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 how, that's how it has to be. You know, as you were kind of going through the list of individuals, in my mind, I was thinking that 
HR, who's essentially the gatekeepers for every employee coming on board, you know, if, if they could find a way to implement a sustainability mission or message as part of the onboarding of employees, I think that would help inculcate them into the you know sustainable tribe as they moved into the organization. Yeah, and that uh, the, many organizations do that. Many organizations, I mean, Unilever would be one example again, uh, but there are others like BASF that have lunches, uh, you know, where uh, employees are invited to come and talk about sustainability. Um, there are organizations where uh, sustainability is a compulsory part of, of kind of you know, any employee initiation or any employee kind of uh, induction program when they get into the company. I mean, it's it's absolutely key. And HR has a crucial role in the whole kind of, you know, sustainability um, uh, journey that companies are undertaking. I apologize about that. Uh, no, that's okay. So moving on, you know, from small actions, what advice would you have to the audience? Could you share with the audience? Do your part. I mean, not doing anything is not an option. Right? You know, today, because of what we are seeing outside, every individual has to kind of step up, whether you are, you know, stay at home uh, dad or mom. I mean, you can do your part on the domestic front. Um, if you're working in an organization, you know, you can talk to your colleagues, you can talk to your department folks and say, hey, what are we doing? Um, you know, are we really leveraging everything we can to be as sustainable as, as, as possible? Um, maybe you are an MBA student and, and then you can think of, okay, what kind of life do I want to lead kind of going forward? Uh, should I not kind of, you know, take more um, classes in sustainability? I feel that each of us, all of us can be what I call a sustainability generalist. And what mm -hmm. that means is that we do not have to know all the details, all the signs behind everything, but rather know what is it that we can do through our, our own spheres of influence to make you know our world a better place. And by world, I don't just mean environmentally, I mean socially as well, because that's another point that's missed by a lot of our uh, audience is that sustainability is equated to environmental. But no, I mean, you know, uh, societal welfare is as much a part of sustainability. And and the point is that there are just options for all of us to, to, to jump in and do. And these refrains of kind of, you know, oh, it's a too little too late or, or what difference can I make by myself? Um, these are precisely wrong. I mean, you know, doing something about it <laughs> is vaguely right, I think, mm -hmm. and, and can take us in, you know, in, 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 in the right direction. But inaction is precisely wrong at this point. I love the advice about being a sustainability generalist. And um, one last thing, I'd be remiss if I don't ask you about the Spotify story. So if you'd love to share, I'd appreciate it. Oh, oh yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I was in Chile in this Atacama desert area doing research on the geothermal plant. And we uh, were really uh, high up in the mountains, right? Um, so we were driving at uh, 14,000 feet. Um, the company is this company, NL, that I mentioned, the electric utility company. They were the ones who were giving me a tour. And we were driving at more than like 14,000 feet. Um, and I'd had to get medical clearance for that trip. So as you can imagine, at those distances, uh, altitudes rather, um, it's uh, and long distances. It's like uh, the internet is is pretty intermittent, and uh, whenever it did come on, 
So beyond checking email, the other thing to do was to kind of, you know, uh, listen to some music because the driver had all these Spanish CDs in the car and needed a little bit of a reprieve from them. Um, so it was one such moment and I was playing a tune from my Spotify account when there was this other uh, song that came on and it was this uh, Barney song, kind of, you know, I love you, you love me, we are a happy family. And it was like, mm-hmm. oh, the how, 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 how is this song coming on here? I mean, I knew the song because my son... Felix, uh, we were listening to it when he was two or three years old, heard it a thousand times, but why was it coming here? And then I realized that <laughs> really was the handiwork of uh, Felix, who was at that time 13 years old. I mean, he'd, uh, you know, I'd been away for a while, uh, and so he was missing me, and, and um, we shared one Spotify account. So he was clever enough uh, to know how to override his uh, my song with his song, so that's exactly what he'd done. So and uh, he was sending me a message, message. of love. You know, he was sending me, uh, he was telling me that he was missing me and so on. And, and that uh, was a pretty special moment because, you know, when you cut to the chase, I mean, what's more important than, uh, than, than, than love and to be able to care for those you love? And uh, if nothing else, I think, you know, companies um, should uh, as well, you know, kind of every individual should be thinking about their children. And that can be a big drive for us to you know, in our generation, at least do do as much as we can. So they do, they inherit a world that's not too far worse than kind of, you know, what 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 we inherited. So that's the hope. Well, Dr. CB, I think that's a great place to leave off on love and caring about others and caring about the planet. I sincerely appreciate your time today. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Thanks.